we line up and go into the lecture theatre on the university campus. It's filled up. Plenty of students, young and old, and me. The professor comes in and greets us charmingly and then asks everyone to be silent and to listen to, well, nothing. Thank you so much. Thanks very much to everybody for coming. And uh, the first thing I'd like us to do is I'd like us to take a moment and just listen. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for about a minute. I'd like you to just listen. Okay, I don't know if that's a minute or not, but let's pretend that was a minute. Any observations? It reminded me of a work of music, four and three quarter minutes. <laughs> Silence. John Cage, very famous piece that operates on basically those principles. Although again, this uh, projector fan would make this a, a poor environment for that particular piece, yeah. Breathing. breathing, your own or other people? Other people's breathing. Absolutely. What it does is it draws your attention to things that you are perceiving and you are responding according to all of the time, but that you're not normally paying conscious attention to. So that's excellent. Those are things that we'll come back to. It's a great exercise at the end. I'm going to propose that uh, this is something that you can do on your own. If you're waiting in line, if you want to know that piece in line at the bank anymore. I was going to say, wait, waiting for a bus or something with nothing else to do. This is a good exercise. I find it's always, always fascinating. So uh, doing it. Always fascinating, he says. Just stop to listen. Sounds, the theme of National Science Week. And this is The Science Show. I'm Robin Williams. And we'll have plenty of unexpected and even predictable sounds today, including music and animals, along with other programmes on RN. Back to our silent lecturer. He's James Andine. He's at the Music Technology and Innovation Centre, De Montfort University in Leicester, UK. Would you call yourself an artist or a scientist? I would call myself an artist. How much science is in what you do? There's lots of science in my field, there's a lot that's very important to my work that has to do with perception and acoustics and psychoacoustics. I would consider myself a researcher, but I think scientist would be a big claim. I think. Indeed, but you perceive, and you are concerned about what other people perceive, implying that they don't really have much awareness of what they're hearing. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, not in a negative way. Our hearing is a reflex a lot of the time. A lot of it is unconscious. So that's, that's not a bad thing, in fact. If we were aware of it all the time, it would impinge on our ability to navigate the world. In my line of work, it's, it's essential to be able to turn that off. It's essential to be able to make it conscious. But that's a learned skill that takes years of oral training. The example in the beginning, which we called silence, yet John Cage with the... <laughs> you immediately recognise that reference, was asking us to be aware of the nature of silence because there's nothing really like nothing. <laughs> there's always something there. And that's important if you're living in the world. It's contemplative. It cools you down. It makes you more aware and serene, perhaps. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yes, Cage's point in part is that there's no such thing as silence. Yes, in terms of listening to the world around you, it is serene. 
I talked a little bit about ways in which the lack of sound alienates us from our environment. So tuning into the sounds around us does the opposite. It roots us in our immediate environment. It brings us back to the here and now really explicitly. And that does have a very calming effect to understand where and when one is right now. Where am I and what is happening to me right now is generally viewed, yeah, as a positive experience. What about the outrageous sounds? And for me, one of the worst is the motorbike that oh, is yeah. absolutely geared to make the most noise. I've heard two in the last two days, and I can't imagine what the young person, bound to be a young man, feels about that intrusion on everybody else. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I can't not agree with you. I agree. But, you know, one man's sound is another man's noise. It's actually, in some ways, purely objectively, it's got a certain amount of charm in that there's quite a lot of gesture and phrasing into one of those sounds as it passes by you, it rises in pitch, it drops in pitch, it has changes in texture, changes in space, so it's quite rich. If you were to record that and take it into the studio, you'd have something quite rich. The problem is that that's a very different environment than, you know, your daily life, and it is very intrusive. But that's more a social question. I hate them, I confess, but I often ask myself, what is triggering that hate? Is it more the sound itself? Or is it more that on some level I think that that person has it that loud specifically in order to impose on other people, which may be totally false, but that's my gut reaction. Well, dimly I can hear maybe a plane flying overhead at the moment and it reinforces the fact that where we're sitting in a great big campus with lots of green fields sort of feeling that somehow when we are in a big city, which you refer to in your lecture, we are discomforted constantly without being aware of it. We're freaked without realising it. And if we took more notice of sound, we could have a better experience of being in the world. Yes, this is absolutely true. You need to have an environment that's conducive to that. So if you're on a busy street, well, I'd still advise opening yourself up to the sound around you. But it won't do as much for rooting you to your environment as in a, an environment where you can really pick out smaller acoustic cues. Yeah, but if you're in a serene environment, you can hear more paradoxically That's because right. you can focus more and you're more aware of, say, birdsong or even the lapping of the shore that you described so nicely. Yeah, that's right. I always think of, uh, I forget which Woody Allen film it is, where he, uh, the New York guy, and he, he goes out to the countryside for some reason, and he lasts a day, and he has to go back because of the constant din and cacophony of the birds outside the window, and he can't sleep, just so much noise. And of course, the joke being, it's infinitely less noise, but it's still often the genuine effect, in fact, exactly as you say. Well, the, the real crunch is, are you aware as an artist of how much research there is in the world available, by scientists say, of this very thing we're talking about? Do people measure that and try to understand it significantly about how it connects with behaviour? They do. Measure is an interesting word. So in these kinds of fields, measuring sounds, decibel levels, these kinds of things, is actually quite far removed from how we experience sound. Again, as that example gives, if you're on a, a train, a train is a phenomenally loud experience, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it because it's steady, you're used to it. Whereas a single bird outside your window in the countryside, infinitely quieter, feels louder. So phenomenologically, how we experience sound is actually quite far removed from how we measure it. 
And that's one of the interesting things about sound, I think, is that it's actually the confluence of quite a number of scientific areas that really are brought together in quite a complex knot if we try to understand a sound, listening, music, these kinds of things. Have you ever come across someone who tells you about the measurement of sound and how they're taking it into effect when it comes to the building that they're putting up as an architect or traffic control or anything that you've come across that uh, really shows people are paying attention? Yes, I think those kinds of people usually have an agenda. They're usually trying to demonstrate that there's no problem with what they're doing where there genuinely is, and so they'll often use the numbers to try. Well, objectively, you're mistaken because the numbers say so. And again, that's because the numbers don't tell the story. There's no psychoacoustics involved in the numbers. It's a very small part of the puzzle, the numbers in that case. Okay, as an artist, what are you going to do next? Longer silences? (laughs) Well, it's an interesting question. The use of silence in music, I think, is underrated and underappreciated, not in a 4 minutes, 33 seconds kind of way. But I find, for example, today with my students, too many of them have lost an understanding of what a pause is, of what a musical pause or a breath or or some amount of silence. And our music is enormously potent. And it's something, that's something useful that I think John Cage said at some point is, biggest decision you will ever make if, as a composer, is, will I make a sound or not make a sound at this particular juncture? And this is true. What I'll do next as an artist, it would be nice to have more time to make some. That would be very nice. <laughs> okay, let's turn to silence. Thank you. Thank you very much. Trouble is, you know, if you broadcast too much silence on air, the AI robot will jump in and play, normal service will soon be resumed. A message like that. But that was James Andean, Senior Lecturer in Music Technology at Montfort University, UK.